Beloved, the Shining Path was an organization, it was a group that was founded in Peru in 1980. And if someone gave an award for the worst oxymoron of nomenclature, uh, the Shining Path might win it. It was Peru's Communist Party. They were a communist, they are, they're still in existence today, a communist guerrilla group in Peru following Marxism, Leninism, and Maoism. The group thought that their goal and their purpose was to overthrow the government through guerrilla warfare. They believed that by establishing a dictatorship of the proletariat, by inducing a cultural revolution and spawning what they hoped or hoped would be a worldwide revolution, they would achieve true, full communism. In fact, they thought that, some of the, that most of the communist socialist countries in the world aren't even truly communists. They are known, the Shining Path are known for their absolute brutality, for their savagery against peasants, trade unions, even other Marxist groups, elected officials, and the general public. Uh, the Shining Path is regarded as a terrorist organization by Peru, Japan, the United States, the European Union, and Canada. In 1991, two cars filled with the Shining Path savages entered the village of Chano, and they were carrying weapons. There was a local evangelical church in Chicano that was having a prayer vigil. They entered the building. The terrorists entered the building and opened fire. The pastor and his wife were slaughtered. They killed another 30 villagers. The Shining Path savages pulled the bodies together. They put them in a big pile in the middle of the village and set them on fire. A missions agency in the same year, 1991, on one of their newsletters had a picture of a surviving man that was praying with a widow whose husband was killed in the slaughter, weeping over the ash heap. Uh, the believers that were left in the church, they met, and they decided that their future meetings would be held in the morning from 6 to 8 a.m. One of the men, a different man than the one I just mentioned, Isaiah Humani, was appointed the new pastor. Pastor Humani had lost his wife to the murder in the attack. Now, beloved, I say all that is, can you imagine in the gathering together of these believers, can you imagine the gravitas, the faith, the solemn, holy weight of their meeting? What do you think it sounded like that first morning, the first meeting after the slaughter, when the believers came together and joined their voices together, lifting up praises to God? Can you imagine the preciousness the love that they had towards one another, the encouragement they had towards one another, their sacred, fire-tested bond of brotherhood. Can you fathom the courage, the commitment? Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Our passage this morning are verses 19 through 25. We have completed the Great doctrinal portion of the beginning of this book. Nine and a half chapters from 1 verse 1 to chapter 10 verse 18. And we are pivoting towards the more application-oriented 
latter portion of this great book. I'm going to slow down a little bit as we embark on this latter portion so that we can digest these commands from the Lord. This morning will be the New and Living Way, part 1, verses 19 through 25. Next week will be part 2, focusing primarily on verses 24 and 25. Beloved, hear the Word of God as I read it in your hearing. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, beloved, as we look at these seven verses, what we'll see is kind of a simple outline. We see, you will see your confidence in Christ in verses 19 through 21 and your commission in Christ in verses 22 through 25. And as we begin this great section from this point of Hebrews forward on practical life matters, the author gives us instruction. He teaches us on our faith and disciplines. It's interesting. There are two markets where people will purchase goods and then absolutely refuse to receive them. These two markets are education and fitness. People will pay for an education and then skip classes. On the fitness side, people will purchase a gym membership. They may amass an array of exercise equipment in their basement and never use it. And we know in the physical world, it's very easy to be lazy, out of shape, and flabby. Now, This is true in the physical world. How much more so, how much more pressing is that in the spiritual world? Beloved, the point here is this. By God's grace and mercy, as we have traversed through the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews, we have amassed an incredible array of doctrines and truths that we've learned. And let us now, as we embark forward, let us be spiritually fit on our journey of faith so that we will guard any kind of encroachment of spiritual lethargy. Let's first look at our confidence, your confidence in Christ in verses 19 through 21. Now, what the author does here is even as he turns the page away from doctrine, more towards direction and application. Even in these first three verses, he again gives review because I need, you need, we all need constant review. Now, practice makes perfect, uh, not to be taken literally, but certainly practice and repetition is of value. And this pastor, author, preacher of Hebrews is a genius inspired by the Holy Spirit in terms of giving summaries. He 
will repeat the same truth with different nuanced aspects. And that's precisely what he does here as he one more time describes to us the confidence that we have and the confidence namely in what Jesus has done and our confidence in who Jesus is. First, our confidence in what Jesus has done in verses 19 and 20. The text begins, look at that. Since therefore, brethren... Uh, The therefore tells us that he's building upon this foundation of what he wrote before. To be sure, the entire nine and a half chapters, but with special emphasis on the once for all sacrifice of Christ and the forgiveness of sins that we enjoy, which were most recently written. And he says, since therefore, brethren, he's writing to believers, And what he will say going forward, he states here as absolute objective fact. Since therefore, brethren, look at the text, we have confidence to enter the holy place. Confidence, courage, boldness, openness, a candidness. This confidence, beloved, this boldness that you and I have that the author states again, not as a subjective feeling or experience, but as the objective reality is not primarily about our feelings, but it's about the truth, the objective reality. It is related, in fact, this is another good understanding of this word confidence. It's related directly to the unparalleled freedom that you and I enjoy in Christ, in our new covenant relationship with God. We have confidence, what does the text say? To enter the holy place. Now, when we understand the holy place we understand the holy of holies we understand that under the old covenant system in the old testament what would happen if someone entered into the holy place or the holy of holies without permission they would be killed they would be executed even by the lord himself at times now when we read these words 2,000 years later, primarily as Gentiles, some of us are doubly blessed with Jewish blood, but I think all of us, we just kind of read these words and they seem straightforward and matter-of-fact to us. But we need to remember the original audience, the group of Hebrew believers 2,000 years ago, their first framework of theological reference was living under the old covenant system. So when the author writes these words, this freedom that anyone, men and women, have to enter into the holy place, these words are staggering. These are revolutionary to the original audience. But the author continues to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, literally in the blood of Jesus. You see, We do understand that the Old Covenant required many blood sacrifices. And in the same way, but with eternally important distinction and contrast, the New Covenant requires one single blood sacrifice. And it is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the means, the avenue, the channel by which you and I approach the Holy Creator God of the universe. Uh, There are many churches, beloved brother and sister churches, that very often will speak of the means of grace. The biblical means of grace, according to the author of Hebrews, is the blood of Christ. And this is, even in one sense, a culmination of the river of blood 
that has been flowing through the pages of Scripture from Genesis 3, verse 21, which empties into the river of blood that flows and empties into heaven. His blood was poured out in the courtyard of earth, and it carries you and carries me into the very presence of God, into the throne room of God, into the holy place. The great hymn by William Cooper, There is a fountain filled with blood. The first stanza reads or is sung as such. And I'm going to read, not sing. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Beloved, that is the reality. That is the cleansing, washing, forgiving, atoning, adopting, redeeming power of the blood of Christ. But the author continues, look at verse 20. By a new and living way. Way, the way. Uh, The way, this was actually the, the way was a title by which early Christians, even in the transitional period between the Gospels and the Epistles in the book of Acts, they were known as a sect that was called the way. We can read that in Acts chapter 9 or Acts chapter 24, but the word I want to focus on here is by a new and living way. The Greek word translated as new here is not the normal word that is translated new elsewhere. In fact, this is the only appearance of this Greek word in the entire New Testament. It's a unique word, and it comes from a root word that means freshly killed, freshly slaughtered, with sacrificial overtones. And the point is, the author of Hebrews is writing this letter some 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. But what the author is doing as he's he's born along by the Holy Spirit in writing this inspired letter is he's saying that even though it's been 30 years since Lord Jesus spilled his blood, the once-for-all sacrifice is still freshly slaughtered. This is in great contrast to the daily weekly, yearly, again and again, impotent, repetitive sacrifices of the old covenant. What the author is saying here is the blood of Jesus has a heavenly, ever-present power and efficacy. God's eyes, beloved, God's eyes are eternally upon the Son as upon a lamb just slain. This is the unique message of the epistle of Hebrews. He continues, which he inaugurated for us, which Jesus inaugurated for us. He initiated this. He consecrated this. He dedicated this new and living way for us, for you, for me. Through the veil, the text continues. Through the veil, you will remember that in the old covenant system, there was this massive in Herod's temple, there was this massive curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And in Luke chapter 23, we read that at the death of Jesus, that veil was ripped apart from top to bottom. And what's amazing, and the author of Hebrews has even referenced the veil earlier, telling us that Jesus has gone through that veil into the very presence of God, bringing us along with him. But what he is saying here is that this veil is 
now no longer an obstacle between man and God's presence, but this very veil is the way into God's presence. The barrier in the old covenant system has become the entrance in the new covenant system into the presence of the holy God of the universe. And then he qualifies it finally by saying that is his flesh. His flesh, his body, the body of Christ is this veil, is this entryway, the way into God's presence. And what the author is telling us here is that this way was opened up by the man Jesus. He is and always has been and always will be, of course, 100% God. And on this side of the incarnation, he is 100% human. And his body, even now, is the veil by which you and I come into God's presence. And beloved, bottom line is an uncrucified Savior is no Savior at all. He was pierced for your iniquities, for my iniquities. So, that is a very brief review, again, of what he's done. And we have confidence in what he has done. And now in verse 21, we also have confidence in who he is. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest. Uh, we know that Jesus Christ is infinitely superior. He is the final word of God. That's how the author opens up this epistle. He's greater than angels for most of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. Chapters 4 and 5, the author opens up his central theme, which is he is greater than Aaron. He is the great high priest. And in Hebrews, he is the priest. He's the high priest. He was also previously the great high priest. And now, here he is the great priest. Literally, the mega priest from the original language. Over, at the end of verse 21, over, overseeing, in authority over, watching over the house of God. And what is the house of God? Some two years ago, before the world went insane, God blessed us with this beautiful edifice. But this beautiful edifice is not the house of God. The house of God is the family of God. It's the family of God, all believers, both the old covenant true people of God and the new covenant people of God, both believing Israel and the church, the household of faith, the people of God. And in fact, this was something the author has already covered for us back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, where the author is bringing out his infinite superiority over Moses. In verse 6, we read these words. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. We are the house of God. Beloved, bottom line, what the author of Hebrews is driving home here with one more swing across the great central ultimate doctrine of who Jesus is, is that he is committed to your case. He is your priest, your great priest, your mega priest on your behalf. And this confidence, beloved, that you and I have in what he's done and who he is, our confidence is in the God who is faithful. It's God's faithfulness and God's promises. God is not the author of unfinished business. He will complete and perfect, mature what he has began. And so, 
Be strong, God would say to you and me. Be strong in the word. Be strong in these three verses. Be strong in the book of Hebrews. Be strong in the entire word of God so that you and I will be strong in the way. That leads us now into verses 22 through 25. Be strong in the word so that you can be strong in the way. We move from our confidence in Christ, from your confidence in Christ, to your commission in Christ. And finally, we arrive at the great central exhortation in this entire sermonic epistle. In fact, verses 19 through 25, it's one sentence in the original Greek. A New American Standard has it as two sentences. But what we see here in verses 22 through 25 are three exhortations. Draw near, hold fast, and think hard. These three exhortations are marked by three lettuces. And I don't mean arugula, romaine, and iceberg. Three, let us. Let us in verse 22. Let us in verse 23. And let us in verse 24. The first exhortation is draw near in faith in verse 22. Draw near. Under the old covenant, people could come towards God, but they were kept at a distance. They were on the perimeter, and they were warned again and again, don't come too close, and don't you dare come close without being invited. The great contrast, beloved, is you and I. We come actively, joyfully, humbly into the very presence of God. Thankfully, the holy place. We come with frequency and expectancy. We come to the place of intimacy with God and the place of security with God and the place of sincerity before God. The text says, verse 22, Let us draw near with a sincere heart. This is the first of the three lettuces. Let us draw near with a sincere heart, with a true heart, a genuine heart. Uh, There's no pretense of devotion here. This is authentic. Uh, We know God is not interested in a hypocritical heart. That was one of, if perhaps not the chiefest, most dangerous sin that was on Christ's heart and mind when he rebuked people, especially the religious leaders, was hypocrisy. Let us draw near with a sincere, true, genuine heart, the text continues, in full assurance of faith, with full conviction of our faith. The author has talked about this assurance before. Back in chapter 6, verse 11, he wrote, We desire each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. But here in verse 22, it's faith. And actually, what we have here is in verses 22 through 25, we have the divine triad of faith, hope, and love. And faith here is the first entry of this divine triad. And we know that man, man and men and women do many things by faith. You cross the street by faith. You get on an airplane by faith. You turn the tap water on and you drink it, not knowing what was playing in the pipes. We do many, many things by faith. But the faith the author is talking about here is not just faith. It's a faith assurance. And the faith assurance, beloved, that you and I have in Christ is the sphere in which we approach God. And this 
assurance, beloved, is an objective, rational reality which is outside of us. It is also a subjective emotional experience inside of us, but first and foremost, it is an objective, rational reality outside of us. And I'll just finish this with an exhortation that I gave back when I preached through that passage in Hebrews 6. Beloved, an assured Christian is strong and vigorous in this battle of faith. An unassured Christian is weak and feeble. Be assured. Grab on to the confidence and the assurance that we enjoy based on the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. And then, The author continues, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Having our hearts sprinkled clean. This is, again, Old Covenant imagery of Moses, for example, sprinkling all the people to cleanse them in Exodus 24. Or when Moses consecrated his brother Aaron to his priestly office in Exodus 29, he sprinkled him. Or we can think of David. In David's great psalm of true repentance, in Psalm 51, after David had committed his horrific sins of adultery and murder, he had true repentance in his heart. And in Psalm 51, 7, you'll read these words, Purify me, David cries out with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And when the Septuagint, when the translators of the Hebrew Old Testament translated this passage into Greek. They use the very same word as sprinkled clean that we see here in Hebrews 10 to translate that first word, purify me with hyssop, is what David cries out. But we ask the question, this cleansing, this wonderful cleansing, what is the cleansing agent? What is, with what is the sprinkling done? The text has already given us the answer. It's the blood of Christ. The author will pick it up again in chapter 12, verse 24. The author there writes, To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to, be, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. He's referencing the sprinkled blood of Jesus. Or the apostle Peter. I love how he opens up Peter. He opens up his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 2. He brings out all three members of the Trinity Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. And this is what Peter wrote, 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. It is his blood that sprinkles us clean. The author of Hebrews' point here, beloved, is that the blood of Jesus, unlike the old covenant blood of bulls and goats, purifies the conscience. It cleanses the conscience so that by God's grace and mercy we can have a clean conscience and we can sleep well at night. I mean, the last part's just kind of a side Benny, but that is an intent that it would cleanse and purify our conscience. And he continues on, this cleansing starts from the inside out, but it is comprehensive. It is all-inclusive. That's why he finishes out this verse and our bodies washed with pure water. This is not talking about water baptism. Uh, The entire context, especially with the contrast with the old, is internal rather than external. And even the little adjective pure water demands a symbolic understanding here. And this is 
basically letting us know that this cleansing does start from the inside out, but our hands, our feet, our eyes, our lips, the things we say, the things we think, the words that we usher, the works that we do are all cleansed before the Lord. It's a comprehensive cleansing. This is the same type of dynamic the Apostle Paul used in Ephesians 5, 25 and forward. If you were here when I preached through Ephesians, you'll remember my favorite verse in the Bible that has to do with human interactions is Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. But then in verse 26, as a follow-along to that exhortation of the husband, Peter, uh, Paul writes, so that he, Christ, might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Beloved, what Paul is talking about there, what the author of Hebrews is talking about here, is what we understand from the beginning of the Bible all the way through the end, which is namely this. Sin makes us guilty. Sin makes us dirty. But by the cleansing power of the blood of Christ, we are freed from the penalty of sin, and we are cleansed from the pollution of sin. And the blood of Jesus is the cleansing agent of both of these that we see in verse 22. Even, I briefly mentioned baptism, even the new covenant ordinance of baptism by immersion of a believer is an external symbol of an internal reality. That's why the Apostle Peter, again, in 1 Peter 3, this time verse 21, wrote this. He said, corresponding to that, he had just referenced uh, Noah being saved uh, through God's flooding of the world, but he says, corresponding to that, watch this, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beloved, a final application of this first exhortation to draw near in faith is this. God is satisfied with the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, and you and I are transformed by this once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. It is a complete cleansing from the inside out. So, we draw near in faith. The second exhortation that we see now in verse 23 is we hold fast to hope. Hold fast to hope. We know that we live in a world where standards and values are constantly shifting, if not being completely obliterated by wicked people on the earth. But our standard is fixed. Our standard is constant. It is invariant. It is universal. And the hope that we have, the hope that we hold fast to, is a certain hope. It's a fixed hope. It's a hope that is based on the promises of God. It's a hope that is based on the faithfulness of God. Verse 23, second, let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold fast. This is a strong word. It comes from a root word meaning force or strength. It can be used to describe holding fast against enemies in the fight of faith as we would apply it to ourselves. Hold fast, keep in mind, continue believing. Hold back or restrain, hold down or suppress. The same word is used, it's a nautical technical term that was used by sailors in the ancient world. And in fact, in Paul's journey by ship in Acts chapter 27, 
Luke writes that they were casting off the anchors. They were heading for the beach, heading for the same word as hold fast. Don't veer off. Hold fast to the hope that we have in Christ. This is something that the author has brought out before. I read the beginning of chapter 3, verse 6, before Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. The rest of the verse says, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Or verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Dad, mom, mom, dad, your children are watching you. They are learning from you. They're learning how to start the race. They, or they learned how to start the race. They are learning how to run the middle reaches of the race. Mother, father, teach them how to finish the race. Hold firm till the end. Teach them how to stay the course with steady persistence. Mom, dad, older man, Titus 2, older woman, teach the younger believers how to stay the course with steady persistence. Hold fast what? Hold fast the confession of our hope. Hope, the second entry of the divine triad, faith and hope. Faith, the author will tell us, chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Beloved, this confession of hope, it's not some detached formula or document or creed as good and maybe even at times as helpful as those things may be, but this is a vital personal witness from the inside out and then out. The German commentator Dielich had these good words about this. He said, quote, this hope in us, like faith from which it springs, being full of joyous assurance, can't remain dumb, can't remain mute. It must speak and give a reason, both to friends and enemies, of its very existence, end quote. And beloved, dear brother, dear sister, your assurance, your confession, your hope is reasonable. It is rational because it does not depend upon your faithfulness. It depends upon the faithfulness of God. He finishes verse 23. For, for, he gives a reason for the exhortation he just gave. For, he who promised is faithful. You see, there will be times on this side of eternity that you won't be faithful, that I won't be faithful, that Paul wouldn't be faithful, that Timothy wouldn't be faithful. That's why Paul, when he wrote his final epistle to young protege Timothy when Paul was awaiting execution, in 2 Timothy 2.13, Timothy said, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he can't deny himself. Psalm 36.5, the psalmist there wrote, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Yeah, there was an old covenant, a different system ordained by God before the coming of Christ. There's a new one now, but it's the same God. It's the same way to God. It's the same walk with God. It's the same way to God and walk with God who is faithful to all of his 
promises. Beloved, God himself unfailingly honors his promises. And as we saw before in Hebrews, the word of God is sure and certain. God said it, that settles it. But in our frailty for our blessing, for our benefit, he even added an oath to his promise. In Hebrews 6, 17, in rehearsing what God had done in his promise to Abraham, the author said, God, Hebrews 6, 17, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. And the oath doesn't make God's promise any truer, but from our viewpoint, for our benefit, it becomes even more emphatic. So, beloved, hope in Christ without wavering, without wavering, standing straight up without swaying one way or the other. And the greatest personal example I can think of this is my beloved Margie. When she had the torturous journey through her cancer and the unwavering faith and hope and confession and trust that she had in the Lord, which evidenced itself even in the testimonies of my children when they were baptized by immersion as believers. Beloved, cherish your faith confidently. Hold fast to the hope of your confession and proclaim it boldly. There's no wavering. There's no looking back. Uh, To the original Jewish audience, don't be looking back. Don't be tempted to go back to the old covenant system. For us, don't be tempted. There's no wavering, no looking back to your old life, to your old worldview, to your old fears. Onwards, straightwards, upwards, and forward. So, draw near in faith. Hold fast to hope. The third exhortation that we see in verses 24 and 25 is think hard to love. Love is the third of the divine triad, faith, hope, and love. And this will be brief. I'll have more to say on this next week. But, verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Consider. This really, I'm not sure what the New American Standard translators were thinking here. That's a very weak translation of this word. It literally means, the word translated consider literally means to take your mind and set it down upon something. Focus, attention, discipline, careful observation and attention of the mind. Think hard on this topic. Maybe you've heard the phrase, Excuse me, he's in the zone. Basically describing someone who's so focused on the task at hand, he can't really think of much of anything else. I can think of how my children have used this to describe me, really in two arenas, uh, fighting and preaching. Um, The more important one, preaching, uh, even to this day, even at times when I have my wonderful son, Zachary, and my wonderful son, Jaden, I'll come to them, I'll be talking to different people, and I'll say, hey, love you, brother. I'll call them brother. And you know, they are my brother in Christ, but I, I'll apologize and say, oh, sorry. I'm, and <laughs> I've had Jaden say to me a number of times, that's okay, you're in the zone. <laughs> you're in the pastoral preaching Lord's Day zone. Beloved, the point here is set your mind down upon this. And what's interesting here is he's taken us from the grandeur of the heavenlies, and he's directing our focus, our care, and attention towards one another. Think hard on how to stimulate one another, to set our mind down on how to stimulate, to agitate, to provoke. 
Obviously, this word stimulate here is stated in an obviously positive sense here, but the other four or five appearances of this word in the New Testament are on the negative side to describe sharp disagreement that erupted and ruptured fellowship between Paul and Barnabas. Acts 15, verse 39 there arose such a sharp disagreement. Same word as stimulate or stimulation in Hebrews. There arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Or Acts 17, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked, same word, within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So, Again, normally that word is negative, but the author of Hebrews is uniquely using it in a positive sense here. Agitate, make motion, stir up. What he's doing us here is he's calling you and me to catalytic actions that would set off chain reactions of love and good deeds. I think a great physical illustration of this is, and some of you may have heard me share this before, when my beloved Margie and I were first at Grace Community Church, I was same thing there. I had two vocations, and occasionally I would get kind of tired. And when I went on staff, we would sit up towards the front, and John MacArthur would be up there preaching. And every now and then, my eyes would kind of start to get a little heavy. And my beloved Margie was like, there's no way you're falling asleep, you know, <laughs> John MacArthur. So she would take my hand and take her beautiful long fingernails and drive them underneath the bed of mine. <laughs> And that would wake me up. And, and I thought of that again. Some of you have heard me say that before. But that's a great physical picture of this agitation, this stir up, of this discomfort that stirs me to love and good deeds and pay attention. <laughs> and by the way, there were a few times where I'd just be sitting there, you know, fully attent and watching. And all of a sudden, my beloved would say, give me the hand. I'm like, what? Give me the hand. I'm like, and I, I think what happened was she looked over right when I blinked or something. <laughs> I'm like, no, <laughs> I, I'm awake. She's she like, mm -mm. give me the hand. I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, I, I'm awake. <laughs> but beloved, bottom, li bottom line, it is better to suffer some little discomfort. It's better to suffer some little discomfort than to run the risk of being spiritually flabby, sloppy, and lazy. And loving each other, our loving each other must be worked at, provoked, agitated, incited. It is better for it to be stirred up than to be pulled out. And we are to stimulate, to consider, think hard on how to stimulate, agitate one another to love and good deeds. Love, again, the third entry of the triad. The good deeds, the word good here, there is a word translated as good in the New Testament that just really focuses on the intrinsic goodness of something. God is good and he defines what is good. This word means intrinsically good and also beautiful in appearance. And I think the idea here is that love will have a practical outcome. It will be beautiful in appearance. And that is what we are to stimulate one another towards. There's a qualifier, which I'll briefly cover here. Again, I'll have more to say next week. Look at what he says. Not forsaking our own assembling together. And this is another very strong word. When he talks about forsaking are assembling together. He's not merely talking about some kind of erratic 
attendance of slothful laziness. This word forsake is a strong word. It means abandon. It means desert. This word would be used to describe a soldier that deserted his post and left his comrades and army vulnerable. And he says, don't desert our assembling together. And the assembling together, episynagoge, uh, episynagogue is just a literal understanding of the Greek. It's describing a regular gathering together of believers for worship and exhortation in a particular place. Something that took place weekly at the beginning of the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2. But even in the transitional period in the Acts of the Apostles went to being a weekly occurrence on the first day of the week. Acts 20 verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16 verse 20. Don't be deserting your solemn responsibility of assembling together as is, the text continues, the habit, the ethos, the ethic, as is the habit of some. Apparently some of the members of that Hebrew congregation showed contempt for attending the services and they did so willfully by deserting the communion of the saints because there's nothing new under the sun. And beloved, one of the first indications of a lack of love for God and a lack of love for fellow man. The greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, in essence, they will know you love me by your love for one another. One of the first indications of a lack of love and God and neighbor and brother is a desertion of this responsibility. And you won't find any lone wolf Christians in the Bible. An isolated bee is a dead bee. No man is an island. And you and I, we can't endure in isolation. And it's sad because those who neglect the assembly cut themselves off from the very means whereby Christ feeds, assures, and protects his people. And then finally at the end of verse 25, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Strengthen and stimulate. This is not just a nice idea. This is an absolute necessity. This is a fellowship which exercises a watchful and unrelenting care and concern for one another. And then finally, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, to be sure, this book was written, this letter was written a few years before the Temple of Jerusalem and even Jerusalem herself was destroyed by the Roman general Titus. But the day that's drawing near, so there's kind of a maybe near-term foreshadowing for the original audience. But the ultimate meaning of the day that is talked about here is the day of the Lord. And it could come at any time. I remember when I was a young man, there were dudes that used to stand out on street corners with a big cardboard sign where they had painted, Repent, for the end is near. The author of Hebrews' version of that is, Love one another, for the end is near. Encourage one another, for the end is near. And do we have courage? Do we have commitment? Do you have courage? Do you have commitment? I have I am 100% confident that if some Shining Path terrace burst through that door, 
that men and even women would show, Santan Bible Church men and women would display great acts of heroism. In fact, knowing our Temple Guard security ministry, I think they, before they even got through the door, they'd probably be dropped. That's a side issue. <laughs> but the main point here is sometimes little things are the better test. Sometimes they're the greater measure than the large things. It's one thing to think about heroism in the face of mortal danger, but do you have courage? Do you have commitment regarding your calendar, regarding the use of your resources, not in the face of bullets and dangers, but in the face of life's pressures that might hinder God's great central exhortation that we see here in this portion of Hebrews. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you again for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you, Lord God, that you inspired these very words, that they are timeless. They were true for that precious Jewish-Hebrew congregation of believers that were born and lived under the old covenant system and this incredible time of temptation and transition for them. Thank you that your words are equally binding and powerful and relevant and assuring and encouraging for us some 2,000 years later in a different land. Dear God, help us to be faithful and help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you as our Lord and Savior. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, and we disperse from here. Amen.